0: Warning, the Dub Talk podcast may contain language in adult situations that aren't suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This episode also contains spoilers for The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, as well as the film on which it's based. Please be aware as you listen. And as always, views and opinions are those of the individual participants, and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dub Talk podcast as a whole. One last note. We at the Dub Talk Podcast would like to thank you for sticking around as long as you have. 3,000 YouTube subscribers, a Patreon that's starting to bear fruit, moments and experiences you're all at least somewhat present to experience. That's why we're trying new things, like the episode you're about to hear. If you like it, please let us know via comment or social media posts. It truly does help us make better content. So please, with that, get as comfy as you can, as we transport you to another world, another time. Hello and welcome to Dub Talk, a show where a bunch of nerds get together and discuss the latest and greatest in anime dubs and English voiceover. Tonight, to commemorate our recent achievement of 3,000 YouTube subscribers, I have gathered myself a ragtag team of resistance members in order to not do what we typically do on this show in a transparent attempt to attract something called a crossover audience? Ugh, I don't know. But here's a shocker, loyal listeners. We're not covering an anime dub today. Wait, we're not?
1: What's you an anime? anime.
0: Uh, in fact, this is only a dub on a handful of technicalities. <laughs> technicalities? I love technicalities.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, tonight, the Dub Talk podcast ventures into another world, another time to the vast expanse of voiceover with our review of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. Wait a second, I thought you
2: told me this was the land of the lost.
0: (laughs) That's that's a different revival of a popular uh, late boomer early Gen X property. (laughs) Does this Netflix-produced prequel of the 1982 cult classic have the right essence? Or will this ritual give you no comfort? Find out tonight in our show... Our episode, Our Fate, the Dub Talk Podcast. I am your host this evening, Skek Roots, the Pug Master. And joining me tonight are Skek Amon, the Dusty Song Collector. Hello. And Orzen, the gamer.
2: Hello, everybody. I may or may not be dead right now. It all depends on what my body is telling me. <laughs>
0: uh, so, obviously, from what I just described, this is a little something new we're giving a try. Um, obviously, there is a lot of crossover appeal in anime-adjacent properties, and I asked, hey, you know, this is a thing coming up. Um, Is it okay if I did an episode so that we could, you know, try out some new things? But... So here is a plot description, courtesy of IMDB. Return to the world of Thra, where three Gelfling discover the horrifying secret behind the Skeksis' power and set out to ignite the fires of Rebellion and save the world. Which honestly doesn't amount to much, but basically... The Dark Crystal in a nutshell is... You have this world called Thra, orbiting three suns. And you have this race of super-intelligent beings called the Urskek, who convince the Guardian of the world of Thra to basically... Let them use and experiment on the power source of this world. In exchange, they will give Agra the ability to venture out into the stars and the cosmos and the universe and see everything that there is to see. So she goes out on a journey, and the Ursket kind of messes things up a bit. In fact, things go so horribly wrong with their experimentations on the Dark Crystal, I'm sorry. It's not the Dark Crystal yet. It's the Crystal of Truth. Keep with me here. <laughs> I know this is long. The
1: the
2: basic idea is that this is Final Fantasy and they drain the crystal and everything's dying.
0: There we go. So everything on the world is dying and by effect Dyruskek who have ...fractured themselves into two separate beings, the Skeksis and the Mystics, by extension are also dying. But they figure out a secret to cheat death. You see, the world of Thra has a group of people called the Gelfling. And the Gelfling are so spiritually connected to the planet that if you, you know take just a little itty bit of their essence and drink it, you can extend your lifespan. So that's exactly what the Skeksis do, and that brings us up to the beginning of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Now, I know the nature of the show is basically to name off the ADR crew and, you know, go over the basics of direction and script writing. It's a little complicated this time around. Because, in all honesty, we are really... I mean, it is a dub, but it also isn't. Oops. In that, you know, the actors are reading off the same script that the puppeteers are getting. Which, by the way, that's also the big thing. This is also technically animation because it's puppets.
2: It, it is a, a very different form of animation. I mean, it's not like, you know, super animation. It's not Thunderbirds are Go. This is traditional puppets. <laughs> it's
3: right. It's st- still things that aren't supposed to move that are
0: moving. So, close mm-hmm.
2: enough. Th- think Jim Henson, only more Lord of the Rings.
0: I mean, it is basically Jim Henson. I mean, Yeah, it's a Jim you Henson know. property, so... <laughs> Uh, but in any case, um, the director for the series is a man by the name of uh, Louis Leterrier. Uh, you would actually know his work from the uh, the MCU Incredible Hulk. Uh, he also directed the first two Transporter films and um, Unleashed.
3: Now, Unleashed—the movie that led me to learn that Bob Hoskins is British. <laughs> that, I, look, I only ever saw him in two movies and he had the same Brooklyn accent in both of them. I assumed he was from Brooklyn.
2: Brooklyn right. rage. Yeah.
0: Now, in terms of scriptwriters, this being a more Western-oriented adaptation, it you have a general writer's room of people, and so there are a lot of names to name off, but the primary primary writers for the series are Jeffrey Adis and Will Matthews. They really aren't, I get the feeling that they're the, um, the blacklist, because they really don't have much to their name, and the big thing that they have on their resume isn't out yet. It's a film by the name of Life in a Year. But... On the other hand, there is somebody else involved in the writing team on all ten episodes that I did want to name off, because he's been involved in some pretty big stuff. His name is David Slack, and you would probably know him as one of the creators of, and I'm not kidding about this, the original 2003 Teen Titans cartoon.
2: Interesting. Uh. That's very different. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Unexpected. Uh he's also done a little bit of script writing work for things like Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot. Mhm. Um he's done some episodes of the uh The Legend of Tarzan cartoon, um some Jackie Chan adventures.
3: don't you, don't you just love animation lifers? They have the most fascinating
0: resumes.
3: <laughs> yeah. One more thing. <laughs>
0: Um, so who would like to start on our opinion on general direction and script writing of the voiceover? Zen, do you want to go first?
2: Uh, I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, I highly enjoyed the, uh, script writing, honestly. Um, I'm kind of surprised by the, the people who worked on this simply because... This has a very Lord of the Rings slash Game of Thrones feel to it. And I was expecting, like, maybe someone who had worked on something like that, one of those projects before. But a couple of unknowns in animation writing. Because a- animation writing is very different from what you'd expect in a big-budget, um, Western, uh, you know, uh, I, I- For some reason, my brain is going to Western RPGs, but um, I'm talking like Western um, fantasy because that's kind of what it feels like it's going for, but Jackie Chan Adventures and all that other stuff, like, animation in that regard is very much centered on fast jokes, fast pacing, but this is very slow to develop and yet very good at establishing the characters and everything, so... It's, it's very different for me. I'm, I I thought uh, this was very enjoyable, um, surprising because you know I had seen the movie beforehand uh, for a patreon request. and I don't you know, I think the rating was some of the biggest issues where there wasn't enough um, there, there was too much vagueness in certain areas. And then when there was exposition, it was all exposition. I feel like here it strikes a very good balance of these are these characters. These are the characterizations of them. And this is the world that they inhabit. And I feel like um, the rating gets across so much better than the original film, in in my opinion.
0: Hmm, Okay.
3: Um, Amon, what did you think? I thought this was very well done. Uh, I can't. I had not appreciated who the director was while I was watching this. I can't believe this is directed by one of, like, the Luc Besson people who directed some of, like, the 8 billion films he produces every single year. So that's fun. (laughs) Um, But I I thought this was was just very well done on the whole. Um, uh, You know, certainly from, like, a technical standpoint, it's incredibly impressive. To watch, uh, uh, it reminded me of, um, how, like you know, especially when I was younger. You know, I, I, you know, I watched Star Wars, which has also has Jim Henson creations in it of some variety. And uh, it occurred to me that all times doing that, I never, I never thought to myself, "Oh, Yoda's like a puppet." Like I never, I never thought of it in that capacity. I was always just like, "Oh yeah, Yoda's like a thing." That's fine. And so that same thing, uh, that same feeling to it. I spent so much of it being able to appreciate the story, and not thinking of the mechanics behind it. So that's great. Um, and the write, the writing felt also just felt very good. Um, in part just because I thought I felt it had it took advantage of kind of what I think is one of the flaws the movie kind of has, which is that the 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 world of the movie feels very big, but the movie has to be ninety minutes long because it has to be released in a the theater in like nineteen eighty two and hopefully make people money. Um, so it kind of has to be contained to a certain extent just for commercial practices. Um. And this, I think, takes takes a lot of advantage of the fact that it's like, no, oh, we're we're like a mini series, basically. We have ten hours to tell this story. We can, uh, you know, we don't need to like have exposition dumps. We don't need to have to rush. You know, we don't need. You know, we can we can take our time explaining what's happening, what this world's like. You can live in it for a while. Um, I think, especially coming from like you know some relative unknowns and all these like. Uh, you know, people who, like, obviously have a lot of work, but are not necessarily working in this particular style of sort of, you know, kind of Britishy epic fantasy kind of thing. You know, like, one of the other writers is, um, what's his name? Uh, I'm blanking on it, but oh. he was, um, I know him because he wrote a comic book series called The Middleman, which got adapted into a one-season television show by ABC Family, which I was a big fan of. Um, i've heard if,
2: good things about that
3: yes if you if you've ever watched it and you know anything about me you are deeply unsurprised that i would enjoy that show um <laughs> but, you know again like that's that's not that's not like the style of this show but i think a, a this is a fun reflection of you know how tv often works in america which we don't you know obviously we cover anime we don't talk about that aspect of like um you know by being a tv writer you kind of have to you kind of have to like improvise a little more sort of range and style um, just because like, uh, who knows what you're gonna be working on. You could be working on this epic puppet show um, that itself is um, a technically a prequel, but I also think um, it avoids the biggest problem. I usually have a lot of prequels, which is you get you get bad prequels. They kind of feel like an inevitable march towards whatever the end goal is. And it's all very predictable. And this feels this does a really good job of feeling like its own story. Like I can definitely see it concluding with the movie. But it, you know, it's it's gonna be. It wants to be interesting in of itself, even if that's even if it knows what its endpoint is gonna be.
2: It's also very good at poking fun at the original film. I, I noticed several points where they they made jokes about like certain things, like the the wings reference in the first episode. Um, oh yeah, and it's like it's it it's clear that these writers loved the source material and knew the source material when making
3: this. Yeah. Um, so, something I will I will point out occasionally is I do obviously Jim Henson himself did not work on this for obvious tragic reasons, um, but I thought the show did a very good job of feeling like in like a Henson production from back in the day, including the fact that like it takes itself seriously enough in the right way, but not so much that it cannot have a little fun,
1: mm-hmm. which
3: I also think is important to the tone. Um, yeah, this is this is this is a really fun experience. I thought this was absolutely great.
0: Okay, um, so, in in terms of just the sheer technicality of the project, <clears throat> um, obviously this is a lot different from what we usually cover. Like, a lot. <laughs> are,
1: are you sure
2: this isn't an anime? I mean, they they, they, they have some really weird creatures, and in, there's some magic, and
0: like I'll I'll tell you though this this definitely feels like a 100 150 ish million dollar anime more or less like just uh, in it, it, it's kind of in a hard to describe kind of way that it it feels written in a similar manner to something like Avatar The Last Airbender or, you know, not quite Japanese-oriented, not, you know, Japanese writers and directors and whatnot. Like, But it definitely had that feeling of they took elements from the storytelling techniques of of Japan and probably a little bit of, uh, mainland China and Taiwan and whatnot. And kind of blended together with Western fantasy tropes and whatnot. And it, it ended up coming out a really beautiful product. And in terms of, the, uh, the dialogue of the show, it is really snappy, bantery. I I love it when the Skeksis talk to one another. Like, it just gets the fact across that they are just these conniving creatures who are willing to stab each other in the back, but are also, at the same time, afraid to die and acknowledge that they can die.
3: They are just delightfully terrible.
2: They, they are just the worst. I, I love that they have like individual personalities now. Um, not to say that they didn't quite have them before, but like, I, I know who they are much better now to the point where like, I'm like, oh, this is, this is the one that, you know, wants this. And this is the one that just wants to be beautiful again. And like, there there are things about each of these individual ones that are really well written that I love.
0: Yeah. Like, I. In in terms of the dialogue and the script writing toward, um, toward the dialogue, I love that all of the characters, Skeksis, Mystics, Augra, the Gelflings, and Hup, like, they all have their distinct personalities, which. I'm gonna be honest, like, I, I do have to agree with Zen that in the original film, it felt like that was kind of lacking because, you know, Jim Henson and Frank Oz had like 90 minutes to work with
1: Hmm. and not nearly Mm -hmm. enough
0: time to, to flesh out a world and characters at the same time.
3: This is, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a fun point of contrast because the dark crystal, obviously, you know, obviously the dark crystal is part of sort of that wave of fantasy movies you got throughout the eighties. Um and that was kind of the norm for fantasy movies up until Lord of the Rings came out, and then what fantasy movies look like change radically. And this this T V show very, feels very much a part of that. And it's interesting mm. and I, I think this calls to this credit of like a lot of those early ones, it's like they have to be short. What kind of like kind of backstory world building they can do tends to be very, very limited. And so Lord of the Rings comes out and it's like, Yeah, no, we can do this. We can do the whole thing. That's fine. And then you get, you know, especially once, you know, those, that, that format moves to TV, it's like, yeah, no, we have, we have 10 hours, like we can, we can do this well and take mm-hmm. our time and, and really put like the correct, uh, you know, emphasis and, and pacing on it. And we're not, you know, we're not, we don't have to be in a hurry if we don't want to. Um, I,
2: I think the best comparison that I have for it is the Dark Crystal, I don't think was bad. It was very interesting. But it was like, say, trying to make something like Labyrinth, which was, you know, very much a child fantasy, and turning it into Lord of the Rings without the runtime.
0: Mm, uh. yeah.
2: It's like, they clearly had ambition, it's just they, the studio did not give them enough to work with.
0: Yeah, and I mean, not to mention... There are entire documentaries on the subject, but like the Dark Crystal was plagued with production woes and like
2: <laughs> not to mention studio that studio
0: they... coups and
2: they had to fix a lot in post production because they wanted to make the Skeksis not talk.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I I recall reading about like the the hardest pitch was just like this is this is basically like the first really not-a-Muppet thing the Jim Henson Company had done since, like, the Muppets got big, and so Alan was like, Jim, what is this? This is not Kermit. How... what? How are we supposed to sell this to people? They're not even cute. <laughs> these ones... I don't, these vulture things are just ugly. I don't know what you're trying to pull here. No child's gonna want to watch this.
2: Well, you see, I want to traumatize the children <laughs> with, with, with this 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 naked bird that gets stripped and has to seduce everyone else.
0: Yeah, remember the rainbow connection? <laughs> I want to do the opposite of that. There's
3: no Paul Williams song here, bucko. <laughs> I, I want the crystal
2: connection. <laughs>
0: uh, but one thing I want to touch on before we move on and it, it'll be brought up periodically throughout the show is just the terms of casting as well. Because this, um, obviously this is a Netflix production, so uh, the Jim Henson Company was able to bring in a bunch of, you know, bring in, like, bigger name actors to come in and play the various characters that populate the world of Thraw. Um, one thing I do particularly like, and this was a thing that I brought up in the, uh, Summer at the Movies episode for Mary and the Witch's Flower. Um, bringing celebrities in to do ADR is a very interesting experiment. Because you can tell, just from the way that they they emote and perform... Which ones are used to being in a recording booth to do their own ADR, and which ones aren't?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, um... Obviously, over the course of this episode, we'll be talking about many, many examples of this. But I do like that, in a general sense, it sounded like everybody involved knew what they were doing. Which, honestly... Even with with the um, Studio Ghibli dubs that come out every once in a while, that's not always the case. So I just wanted to lightly touch on that, and, like, there are a lot of great performances, and ones that we're not even going to be discussing today over, you know, time constraints for this episode, so, but we'll, I'll get a little more into that in Final Thoughts. Uh, So, we should move on to our first batch of characters. Um, Our first group of characters will be the only two complete pairs of Skeksis and Mystics that we see through the course of the show. They're also sort of brand new characters introduced into the canon. Though, from what I understand, they were also introduced in earlier... Attempts to expand the universe of the Dark Crystal beyond the movie in graphic novels and books and whatnot. Uh, we have. We have Skek Maul, who is referred to the other Skeksis with the title of the Hunter. He dwells outside of the castle of the Skeksis and just basically hunts things for sport. He worships the idea of death and is one of the few Skeksis who is actually shown willing, like absolutely willing to kill one of his own in the beginning of the series. And we also have Urva, his counterpart, the the archer who shows up in the beginning of the series to lead Agra on the path that she needs to go on to discover what is going on with the world of Thra and why it's all of a sudden dying. And our other pair is uh, Skek-Graw, who was formerly known by the Skeksis under the title The Conqueror, but had a change of heart when he discovered what the actions of the Skeksis were doing to the world, and he decided to meet up with his mystic counterpart and figure out a way to counteract what the Skeksis were doing. So he was given a new title of the Heretic. And his his mystic counterpart is Ergo the Wanderer, who doesn't dwell in the Valley of the Mystics anymore, which is... Where the the mystic people have decided to settle. And that's where you see them in the beginning of the movie. Uh, The two of them are basically the ones who set out to introduce our hero Gelfling to what they will need to do in order to end Skeksis' power. Uh, So Skekmall is played by Ralph Innocent. And is performed by a combination of Kevin Clash and Nick Kellington. Uh, you would know Ralph Inison from such projects as the HBO Docu series Chernobyl. Uh, he was also in The Witch, The Harry Potter franchise, and From Hell. Uh, Irva the Archer is played by Olaf R. Olafsson. Olafson. Uh, you would have seen him in such projects as the BFG, the How to Train Your Dragon franchise, uh, Nose 4A2, the, the new AMC series, and the uh, the Netflix animated series Hilda. Uh, Skek Raw, the heretic, is played by Andy Samberg. hmm <laughs> And uh, was performed by Damien Farrell, and with a little segment in their episode uh, from YouTube puppeteer Barnaby Dixon. Uh, You would know Andy Samberg from such things as his musical project, The Lonely Island.
2: It's my dick in a box.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brooklyn (laughs) Nine-Nine. Uh, Hotel Transylvania and the Claudia with a Chance of Meatball franchise. Uh, Ergo the Wanderer is voiced by Bill Hader and is performed by Ollie Taylor. And at the aforementioned Barnaby Dixon scene, uh, you would know Bill Hader from such films as Inside Out, uh, It Chapter Two the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs franchise, and the Angry Birds film franchise. Uh, So we'll start it off with Zen. How did you feel about this first group?
2: I think they were pretty solid, honestly. Um, I really... Overall, I don't have too too much uh, problem-wise to say about the voice acting and performances in this uh, series because I think... They they really took their time to flesh things out. I'm gonna have some more individual things to say the the more we go on, but honestly, these these are very solid performances.
0: Oh, are you are you all set? Yep. Okay. Um Amon, what did you think? I enjoyed these.
3: Uh, these were these were a lot of fun. Um Uh, I mean, as you as you mentioned the credits, some of these um, some of these actors like they do clearly have experience doing their own EDR in some capacity. Um, But even the ones who don't, I feel like the the, this and this will I'll mention this later on because I think it's pretty consistent throughout. I think the show did a good job of casting actors who either had like previous EDR experience or were able to pick up on how to do it well. Um, Because I didn't very little. of This felt like you know, oh, they've cast a big name celebrity. Because they can put their name on the poster, and whether or not they're actually very good at voice acting is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, you know, like you know, and far and admittedly, I'm not familiar with all these actors, but like you know, I thought Innocent and Olafson did very well as the hunter and the archer. Uh, you know, I thought they they brought what they needed to those roles really well, uh, particularly Innocent, who I thought was very good at feeling. Like, legitimately really menacing. Like, he, he's the... Like, a lot of the Skeksis are, like, you know, gross and off-putting. The Hunter's the only one who felt scary. Like, he might actually do something that, like, would cross a line that the rest of them weren't going to do. And I thought Insom did a very good job of selling that. mm mm-hmm. um, And... I can't believe we got a Dark Crystal TV series and Andy Sandberg and Bill Hader are in it, voicing anybody? <laughs> that... <laughs> It's I, my I, skick in a box. <laughs> you 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 had mentioned you had mentioned that Andy Samberg was in it, and I had like prior to me starting to watch the show, and I had forgotten about it. And then when when he his character started to show up, I'm like, oh, who is this? And it's like, all oh, right, Andy Samberg is in this TV show. Um, I I thought they were very entertaining. I thought especially Bill Hader, who like I did not recognize at all. Like he's he's having a good year apparently um and he i thought i thought the both of them together were like very funny and very entertaining um i don't have a complaint per se but i am like 75 percent sure that any sam the voice Andy sandberg chooses was clearly his yoda impression from when he was a child uh that he then got out of storage <laughs> and re- no, look look i'm saying when he first shows up on that recording the big stone guy has i briefly thought for a minute did they get frank oz for this Is Frank Oz making a more cameo in here? Like, he, he, especially there, like, he sounds pitch perfect. Like, he sounds exactly like Frank Oz. Um, (laughs) I know, I thought they did a very good job of, like, clearly, like, playing off each other and, like, feeling like, yeah, no, these are definitely, like, two people who found each other and have been here for, I mean, I I forget what time frame, like, the, the sort of thing, like, they're, them living out in the wilderness is on, but, like, yeah, no. Um, these sound like two people who like, they are, they are, they are more than anything. Like they're the two closest people, like they're, they're two halves of the same person. Um, and I thought that in particular, like worked really well for them. It was just really well done and not really, not a kind of performance I was expecting from two SNL, uh, you know, uh, alums, one of whom I saw on tour this summer. He was very funny. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, no, it was a good show. (laughs)
2: And that's a that's a interesting thing to, to to think about too because like I didn't know it was Andy Samberg. I I had no idea cuz uh, most of the time I don't look up the casting and mm-hmm. I I mean I I fast forward to the end of the credits and you know move on to the next bit because I don't want to usually be spoiled for these things. I couldn't tell that was Andy Samberg and when you know when we learned about it I'm like, "Uh-oh. Oh, oh, that like it's you, it, it, let, let's just put it this way: You would know if it was, um, say, uh, God, what's his name? That the guy who plays Joe on, uh, who plays Crunk in Emperor's New crew Oh, Patrick um, Warburton. Yeah, you would know Patrick Warburton. But the the fact that you get a celebrity like say Andy Samberg and he does such a good job, but you don't know it, like. It's it's interesting. It, it's very well done.
0: Hmm. Um, so, I... I had liked the air of menace that Ralph Innocent had given Skekmaw from basically his first appearance, but it was the big fight in the fourth episode between him, Rion, and his father... That was just one of those holy shit moments of the show. Cause I I literally watched it transition seamlessly from man in a suit to CG back to man in a man in a suit, and I'm just like, God damn, this is some Thunderbolt fantasy shit right here. <laughs> like that literally came out of my mouth, and that was how I pitched this show to my father. <laughs> Because, okay On a little bit of a tangent I do need to tell a little bit of a story I had gotten my father Into Thunderbolt Fantasy By having just Thrown it on Crunchyroll one day And He's not the kind of guy who would typically watch anime But It drew him in because it reminded him So much of Thunderbirds And rest is history. I actually got him to watch something remotely anime-esque. Anyway. So. I just. I I really love the. Just. Like Amon said. He was the one Skeksis that you actually felt was capable of pulling off some. Was capable of actually pulling something off. In terms of like the actual threat level he presented, and um, Olaf Darri Olafsson as Orva, you don't really get to see much of him, and unfortunately, there are unfortunate reasons of the show for that. But I do like the one scene where he gets at the uh, at the sanctuary tree with Agra, where he's trying to lead her. ...to the path that she's supposed to take to dis- rediscover the Song of Thra, ...so that she can communicate with the planet again. And he's just... ...issuing out these proverbs. And I... Like, the one part of that I really love is when he... ...shoots the arrow straight up. And it lands on the ground, and... ...to, to show her that the answer was the planet itself... And just, the two of their interactions were were pitch perfect. Now, time to get to Andy Samberg and Bill Hader. <laughs> like, uh, they give off the perfect air of like... Oh, how would I describe this? Old married couple? They give off the air of an old gay couple who moved to. Bakersfield to grow pot.
2: <laughs> Welcome to the odd couple in space. Like,
0: <laughs> like, they open up a bed and breakfast in, like, Bakersfield, California, out in the desert, and they're just, like, growing hydroponic pot. Like, that, it, it was, it was absolutely perfect. They, they bicker like an old and married couple. I, I love that. Andy Samberg is, like, the really fast talker and Bill Hader is sort of the very slow, like, the sloth from Zootopia. (laughs) And, you know, Heretic is getting annoyed at him and trying to finish his sentences. Like, Andy Samberg and Bill Hader just... They definitely give off the air that they... They get along so well. And a funny little anecdote I told in the... uh, In the Dark Crystal group. Was, um... The two of them are actually responsible for the... The, um... Quote-unquote, voice of BB-8. Because they were... In the middle of a... I guess... From what I... uh, From what I understand of the story. They were either on the phone or out to lunch with J.J. Abrams, and they were messing around with a phone app that was giving off beeping noises that just ended up giving J.J. Abrams what he needed for the voice of BB-8. So the two of them ended up in the credits of the movie.
3: Astonishing. (laughs) What a fucking reality we live in. What the hell?
0: But yeah, the two of them are pitch perfect and... Should a Season 2 come of Age of Resistance, I would love to see more of them. Speaking of the Resistance... Um, we have a few members of the Gelfling Resistance against the Skeksis. Uh, first of all, we have Madra Mayrin, who is... Known to the Skeksis people as the Madra, She is the queen of all seven clans. Uh, Designated as such, she is the mother of one of the three protagonists, Brea. And she ends up dying halfway through the series. That spurns on the aforementioned resistance. Because she's murdered by a Skeksis. Uh, we have another one of her daughters, Celadon, who succeeds her, and is at first... <laughs> uh, she's unable to believe that the Skexis murdered her mother, because they are seen as basically patron saints and gods to the Gelfling. And so, left in the sense of denial, she decorates herself as a Skeksis... And tries to get back into their good graces, which obviously doesn't work. Uh, We have Gurjin, who is another one of our protagonists, Rian's best friend and uh, comrade-at-arms in the Skeksis castle. Because they were both working as guards before all this went down. And then we have Madrafara, who is the leader of Rian's clan, the Stonewoods. She is given the title The Rock Singer. Presumably because she can sing to rocks. I don't know. (laughs) Well,
2: maybe she invented rock music. I mean, you never know.
0: Eh, This is always a possibility. (laughs) Uh, So, the Almadra is played by Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, you would know her from such things as Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland franchise, uh, Harry Potter franchise, uh, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were Rabbit, and Corpse Bride,
2: and many other things. Because Helena Bonham Carter is 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 she's in, she's Tim Burton's go to,
0: <laughs> right? Aren't they married? She's in, like, <laughs> I I, I want to say they're at like. They're, like, at minimum common law. Sounds right.
2: Yeah, all all I know is that, like, she was, you know, she's in a lot of good projects. She's not always good in them. Uh, Cough, cough, flame is cough, but, you know.
3: Sorry, sorry, they were married.
0: Okay. Um, Celadon is played by Gugu Mbatara. Uh, you would know her from such projects as The Cloverfield Paradox, A Wrinkle in Time, the 2017 remake of Beauty and the Beast. And I want to say she wasn't Doctor Who, but I'm not sure if it was during the Eccleston years or the David Tennant. I think it was like 2005-ish that her episodes were. Hmm. Anyway. I think that would have been Tennant, but don't quote me. Okay. Uh, gurgin is played by Harris Dickinson. Uh he mainly does a bunch of um British television, so he may not be entirely recognized here at this time um but you may know him from projects coming up soon such as the Kingsman and Maleficent mistress of evil
1: uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: And uh, Madrafara is played by Lena Headey. You would know her from such projects as Game of Thrones. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, She was also in Trollhunters Tales of Arcadia. Uh, Surprisingly, um, she was the voice of the conductor in Infinity Train. And um, she also made a couple appearances in Uncle Grandpa as um, the appropriately titled Aunt Grandma.
3: We're going to get a lot of resumes like this in this show, aren't we?
0: <laughs> Re- really, it's more,
3: uh, it, it's more of a miracle there aren't more Game of Thrones actors in the year, just for the sheer number of people who've been on Game of Thrones over the last decade. It's, right. it's
2: also very interesting to me because this feels very Game of Thrones in its structure. Um, I mean, the way... And not necessarily the, you know, there's a bunch of kingdoms and blah blah blah, but more of the way they tie everything in together. The disparate storylines, and then we have montage at the end type of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and because I forgot to mention it before, um... uh. The All Madra was performed by Louise Gold, uh, Celadon by Helena Smee, uh Gergen by Dave Chapman, and Madrafara by Alice Dinian. Uh, take it away, Zen.
2: Um so I I wanna actually start with the with Gurjin first, because I really like this performance. Um uh this this character um was was someone who I thought would uh be Kind of superfluous in earlier episodes, but honestly, I really love the, the performance that he gives. Uh very much a uh deep performance, but also very uh lighthearted, uh, someone that you you expect to be more serious, but really wasn't. Um uh, let's see, as for uh the Almadra <laughs> I uh I do like this performance as well. Definitely carries herself on um, like her stature, but at the same time, um you could you could say that, you know, she's not the the most likable person in the world, um, but she does what she has to. Uh Celadon, yeah, definitely the, the, the bitch of the group. Um I I, I can definitely get that. Um, and, uh, The Rock Singer, um, I didn't really get too, too much from this character, but I, I think it was a solid performance.
0: Okay. Amon?
3: Uh, these are, these are good performances. Um, I kind of resent saying Gurgen. Gurgen, feels like a character who, like, you know, would show up in the first few episodes and play a part there and then kind of fade into the background a little bit and be kind of, you know, he's like a dude when things aren't super high stakes yet. And he kind of just becomes one of the crowd as time goes on. Um, but he stuck around. I, I, I liked what Dickinson was doing with him. Um, I feel like um, the Gelfling in particular, I feel like visually they less so with um, Gurjin and um, Madrafara because of their design, but the Gelfling I think kind of read very much like Tolkien elves. Yes, um, yes.
2: And, very, yes. and, and,
3: and very, I, I feel like the... the kind of lazy ruin would kind of be to lean into that, you know, the way elves are done in that style where they tend to be very, you know, they're ethereal and they're very um, like uh, inhuman in a certain way. They seem very standoffish. And I think I, a, a, gr- a good thing I think the show did is even, you know, uh, you know, um, Marjorie and the All-Madra has a little bit of that, but it's always very much like, oh, that's that, that's not a front, but that's kind of a, a face she puts on because she knows she's in charge and she has to make the hard decisions. And there's something, like, they, they never get away from being like, no, these are, you know, they're not literally humans, but they're people. There is a humanity to them. They have, you know, you know hopes and dreams and things stress them out, and they have to make hard choices that they don't want to make sometimes. Um, I think Gurdjian feels like a good example of that. Like, there's something very grounded about him. He, he has the air of, like, someone you would actually know. Um, someone who would be your friend, even, if you're one of the main characters.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and someone who will you know go along with you, and then just decide, hey, I'm just gonna stay here because uh, I don't want to be part of this plan.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, and I I thought Dickinson did a great job of that. I I liked, I, similarly, I liked what um, Lena Headley was doing with Mara Fadra, who was you know, I I think they do a nice job contrasting her and her tribe with the way that um you know. Uh, Majumarans is who are very much you know much more kind of like you know steer- they look very stereotypically kind of you know high alt you know very clean and there's a lot of like white bright colors and uh, Majumarans groups are much more you know grungier lots of greens and browns um, and I thought she, she sold that that aspect of it as well she felt somebody who's a lot more rough and tumble but you still bought as like no no you're you're the queen you're the matriarch of the society there's a, there's a nobility there's like a, a royalty nobility in there even with that um and this group, I really want to, I want, you know, the big shout-out for me is for Helena Bonham Carter and um, gugumovoth Ra, who I think just turn in wonderful performances. Um, Carter, I think, really sells the... Like, there, there's a stateliness to this character, but there's also just this, this someone who clearly, like, knows the weight that is upon their shoulders and takes it very seriously. And is very much aware of, like, you know, there's this bigger power struggle going on that I need to be aware of all the time. I can't just flake off and not everything is going to go great, but you know I got to make the hard choice. Um,
2: we have a game of Thra, if you will.
3: <laughs> not wrong. That's good. You're That's good. And, and, and especially, I think I think her interactions with the the actresses who play her daughters, I think, is exceptionally well done. Like she, it, it feels very, it is befitting of a, it, it's a performance befitting of a, an actress of Helena Bottom Carter's um, stature in, in in the first place. Like this is clearly like, yeah, no, this is this is good shit. Um, and uh, both ra like, really good at playing a character who's just really unpleasant a lot of the time, like. Soledad, Soledad gets a little better at the end, but she is so very, she is so much bought into the Kool-Aid that the Skeksis have sold in the Gelfling. Um, and she's so good at hitting that, and just sort of her, like, like her casual jealousy towards her sisters who, like, she's so frustrated with, because it's like, you have, like, you also have this, why do you not care? Why do you not care about this thing that's so important to me? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Um, and like, she's, she's not a Terribly pleasant person for a lot of the show, but um, I th- I think she, I think um, Mubothra just does a wonderful job of hitting that. Um, she's that not like so unlikable, but like it it's, it it feels so authentic. It's like yeah, no, like I've like I've known people who like have these kind of relationships with their siblings, which often feels especially from the outside very like, they're, they're your sibling. Why why are you so like vicious towards them? Um, and she you just you just puts that out there really well. Like these are all very good performances. I was very happy with all of them.
0: Okay. Um. So yeah, I I think I'll start with Gurgen as well. Uh To be honest, at the beginning of the series, I thought he was gonna be sort of a, a fair weather friend to Rianne. Oh, he
3: very much reads like the guy who's gonna stab Rianne in the back in like two yeah. episodes.
0: Or but die, I, I, one of the
3: two.
0: <laughs> that was the other thing. Like, he had numerous death flags at the beginning of the show just hanging out there, and I'm, I'm glad he stuck it out to the end. But I, I love that he contrasts Rian's stoicism really well. He is the... He is the Joker of the group. He He's not quite the comedy relief. That's that's elsewhere, but He's you know, the
2: Mark Hamill Joker
0: <laughs>
2: of the group. <laughs>
0: um He He just has a lot of light, witty, bantery conversations with everyone that just Like it feels like a really good refreshing it, it, it feels really refreshing after things get kind of heavy for Gurdjian to just let off a one-liner and just clear the air. And, um... Helena Bonham Carter as the Almadra, I was really taken aback by the performance. And, like, especially right at the point where she's starting to realize everything that's going on and... She's trying to rally her troops to resist the Skeksis. And then she has a conversation with Hup. Where he's trying to get into the... The big Gelfling knight garrison. But he's... He is of a different species, so it doesn't seem plausible. But she turns to him and she's just like, yeah. You could be a paladin too. Raise your spoon up high and be proud.
2: What's a paladin?
0: I I think it's like a knight or something. (laughs) They go to church a lot, I think. I don't get it. But it's just... we'll, We'll have more to talk about with Hup later, but... Like, she just got the sense that she knows how to inspire the people around her. Which is about the opposite of what I could say about Celadon. But that's not to say uh, Gugu Matara's, uh performance wasn't any good, because it's probably one of the strongest of the show. Just by sheer presence. She has to convey the fact that she has basically bought hook, line, and sinker on the Skeksis propaganda. She tries to manipulate her fellow gelfling into more or less even after she figures out why the Skeksis are asking for gelfling to be gathered up she is still with that up until the point where she is shown that not even the sacrifice of a few for the many is gonna work and she is just dragged down to her lowest point before she decides yeah you know what I'm going to fight back. And I i really think... Um, Gugu and Batara really got the duality of the character down. Because she has to not only be this sort of brainwashed noble. But also an inspirational leader after she loses her mother and one of her... And the more chivalrous sister... She has to step up and be a leader, and I think that was conveyed really well. Mm-hmm. And also, just they got Lena Headey in here, and she is a bit of a she's a cold warrior, and I really like that, especially in contrast to the character she played in Game of Thrones who is a bit more of the conniving politician type. But... I, I love that she actually... She actually got to play a character in one of these high fantasy... Uh, big name series as, like, a noble. Like, an actual noble person. And I... I gotta hand it to her. So... All in all, really great solid performances all around. But speaking of solid, shall we say rock solid? Shall we say crystal solid? <laughs> I don't know. I I was trying to go for a <laughs> segue there, and I kind of beefed it. It's all right. We get the idea. Uh, but we are now getting into our big main Skeksis. Uh, we won't be covering all of them tonight, just six. Uh, starting with Skeklak the Collector. He is basically this big intimidating Skeksis that is meant to collect tributes from the Gelfling. Uh, he also has a bunch of bulbous sores on his face that like to pop open at inopportune times. He claims he was beautiful once, but, you know, who can tell? Uh, We have Skekvar, the general. A very brutish... Like, he is big and intimidating, and he is actually the first to draw Gelfling... Like, actual Gelfling blood when he murders the Almadra. Thus... Setting this entire series of events to the Resistance in motion. Uh, he's also a bit of an oaf and a doofus. And is very easily manipulated. And then we have Zok the Ritual Master. Actually, the first Skeksis we're actually talking about in the course of this episode... Who also appeared in the movie. Uh, he is mainly in charge of religious festivities within the Skeksis and the and the Gelfling. His main purpose is to basically figure out how to conduct rituals for the most benign and banal of tasks. Uh, so Skeklak the Collector is played by Aquafina and performed by Helena Smith. Now you would know Aquafina from such films as Crazy Rich Asians, Ocean's Eight, uh, the Angry Bird Movie Two, and you will be able to hear her in the SpongeBob movie. It's a wonderful sponge.
3: If there's any, just... is... sorry, go on.
0: I, I think that's coming out like next year. So, yeah, if, if there's any
3: justice, in about uh, six months, you'll be seeing her accept an Oscar on stage.
0: <laughs> uh, now, Skekvar the General is played by Benedict Wong, and is performed by Kevin Clash. Uh, you would know him from such things as the broader Marvel Cinematic Universe, as um, as Wong. Um, Dr. Strange's right-hand man.
2: Who's invited to the wedding.
0: <laughs> uh, you can also see him in The Martian. Prometheus. And he was also in the video game Prey. And Skek Zok, the Ritual Master, is played by Keegan-Michael Key. And performed by Victor Yarid. Now, you would know Keegan-Michael Key from such things as Mad TV. Key and Peele. Uh, Hotel Transylvania. He had some cameo appearances in BoJack Horseman, and you can also hear him in Toy Story Four. Uh, so Zen, why don't you start us up?
2: Um, I think the one that really stood out for me, performance-wise, the most is the Collector. Um, Aquafina did a really great job, especially from the beginning, because you know they paired. Aquafina, the collector, with the scroll master, and I think both had really great performances that really drew me in. And I think the biggest thing is that they showcase that the Skeksis aren't entirely evil because both the scroll master and, and the collector all have their own, uh, I, I want to say, um, uh, good points to them and things that like you can understand how they would be beneficial to the Gelfling, and you could see it the most I think with the Collector and the Scrollmaster, which we're not talking about. But Aquafina's performance, like how like you know we we had knowledge and you know before knowledge I was beautiful and now I'm ugly, and like there there's these things that you know uh, is really brought a cross in the subtlety of that performance um, that I really enjoyed. Um, As for Benedict Wong as the general, perfect. I mean, I like Benedict Wong in pretty much everything he's been in, Um, and I think this is pretty much a a, a perfect casting role for him, especially because, you know, Wong is just, has this very commanding voice in it, very fitting for the character. Um, As for the ritual master, I mean, I didn't know this was Keegan uh, michael key um i uh, but I think it's very fitting, especially because this this character is supposed to be you know giving them false rituals like he's supposed to be predicting the future and, and whatnot, but doing things um uh to to control the the rest of the Skexies, because everyone's evil in the Skeksis society but um I, I think choosing key. Uh, it was a perfect choice, personally. I li- I really liked the performance.
0: Okay,
3: i Yeah, no, these are these are some great performances. Um, where do I start? Uh, I, mean, yeah, I agree. Like, I I did not pick up that Skeksok was supposed to be Kika Michael Key. Um, I I I I haven't heard him do too much of his voice acting role outside of BoJack Horseman. Uh, but I have; he was a guest on the podcast, uh, The Thrilling Adventure Hour, the old timey style radio show, which I'm a big fan of. And he is always fun when he gets on there because he is he's good at projecting himself. <laughs> um, uh, he's he's just very fun here. He get he gets he gets an opportunity to like ham it up a little in just the right way. Um, it 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 feels very much like a performance where like it's not like. It's not overtly like, oh, they cast a comedian for this role, but you can tell that they they got somebody who has good like timing to him. Like, there's a there's something in there um, that I think he, I think lends himself well to him. He's he's very entertaining. Um,
2: I mean, they didn't cast a Aaron Balake or anything, you know?
3: <laughs> don't know who that is, but I'll assume that was a funny joke. It,
2: it, if, if you've watched the East-West Bowl uh, or, or anything that uh, Key and Peel has done, uh, one of oh, their I jokes is, you know, uh, one of the jokes is that a- a- Aaron Blake is, you know, someone mis- mispronouncing it as A-Ron a- <laughs> Balake. Ah, I see now. <laughs> <laughs> that
3: is funny. Um, uh, Aquafina is also a lot of fun. Um, she, she's probably one of the few people playing the Sketsis who, after I figured out who it was, I could I could kind of tell it was her, just because she has a relatively distinct voice. But I also thought it was fun, because it still sounded very... very Muppety, for lack of a better word. Like, it still sounded like... like, I could tell, like, oh, that's Aquafina, But this is her voice in a really, like, really befitting of this, like, really gross, grody character, who, like, constantly has these pustulates on their nose that just, like, pop all the time. Um, And she just sounds like she's having a blast, frankly. Like, I'm, I'm... spoilers I'm sad she blows up at the end I was kind of hoping we'd see more of her in the future <laughs> which sucks but what's she gonna do yeah it um, happens I know she was really entertaining though I'm'm I'm, 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 I hope she gets something for the farewell she's really good in that too um and I'm happy she got to play this part here even if this will probably be the end of it um and yeah Benedict Wong's just really good like I think I was, I think of the general as kind of like like they're like you know the skeksis are important in general, but there are like the ones among the, who are like the big movers and shakers to the plot. And I thought the general was very much a part of that. And I thought Benedict Wong was just excellent. I like I, to the point I didn't even think of like oh there's an actor playing this. It's like no, that's the general, and he's he's conniving, and he's he's he keeps pissing off the wrong people, and he should probably stop doing that. But he's not gonna because <laughs> he he thinks he 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 for good reason thinks he's gonna get on, on top, and, and Benedict very much sells that. Uh, that makes what happens in the end all the more affecting, or what have you. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed these performances. I thought they were just really well done, especially given that um, uh, you know, the, yeah, the Skeks, I'm, sure, I'm sure trying to lip flat match the skeksis is a is a is a, 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 a a skill in and of itself. So, props <laughs> to those guys.
2: I mean, Wong does have uh, friends in high places. He knows Doctor Strange, so... That's true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I, um... It's really kind of a shame that Skekzok didn't really get to do as much as I expected him to when he first appeared in the show. Especially seeing the announcement that he would be played by King and Michael Key. But I do, I do really like that he sort of played him with that, oh, what is the word I'm looking for, um, like, there's a little bit of a false bravado to him, and, um, it was really interesting doing the research for this episode and looking into, like, the expanded lore of each of the characters and... It turns out that, you know, the Ritual Master makes everything up just so that he can manipulate, like, not only the Gelfling, but his fellow Skexies as well. And that ended up playing into the movie where he was attempting to seize the throne and become the new Emperor when the Emperor dies. But I, I just love how... But null the character is as a whole like he's trying to make himself as unassuming as possible but you can kind of tell that he's trying to make an angle for rising up in the uh, in the Emperor's inner circle and I I do have to agree with Amon that um, aquafina was a hoot as a collector
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: She just plays him with this childlike naivete. Him and the general are sort of... I get the feeling that they're sort of portrayed as the... Sort of the... I don't know... What is what is the term I'm looking for? Um, the duller bulbs of the Skeksis, let's say... Uh, they are not particularly bright easily manipulated and I I love that Aquafina just plays around with her voice with the character and still kind of makes him a bit intimidating when he needs to be and Benedict Wong is the general just playing this big old lunkhead. And his interactions with the Chamberlain, his interactions with the Emperor, especially after he learns the big secret of the Emperor and what he's doing and his plans and all this. Like, it was it was all great. And it's actually kind of a shame that neither the General nor the Collector will come back for a Season 2 if we end up getting one. But with that, uh, we will move on to our second group of Skeksis. Uh, we have the scientist Skektek, who has basically discovered that if you drain a gelfling of their essence and drink it, you can basically live forever, as long as they're a gelfling. Uh, we have the absolutely deliciously conniving Chamberlain, uh, Skexil who is basically going behind everybody's back and trying to play everybody and really isn't as good at it as he thinks he is, which plays into his, his character arc particularly well, especially when he succeeds. And then we have Skexo, the Emperor, the ruler of the Skexies, and, by extension, the Gelfling. Uh, his experiments with... The Crystal of Truth, which has been corrupted, and sort of the corruption it causes has led to a phenomenon known as the Darkening. Where the animals of the world are going berserk, stuff is dying, all around bad times. And he's planning to harness and manipulate this as a weapon. Which is, in fact, accelerating his death. Uh, so, playing Skektek the Scientist, we have Mark Hamill, and Ooh. also, who is also being performed physically by Ollie Taylor. I can actually do something very interesting with Mark Hamill. Mm-hmm. I could, I could tell you guys, you know, he's Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, he's the Joker in Batman: The Animated Series, but this is dub talk. <laughs> I can actually name four things that he was in that came from Japan. Uh, you can find him in I believe it was the Disney dub of Castle in the Sky. I don't think it was the uh, the streamline. That,
3: that is correct I believe.
0: Uh, he was in IGPX the first Adult Swim co-production Uh, With production IG for anime. And that's how they became Buddy Buddy. Uh, He was in the Kingdom Hearts franchise. Uh, And also, a little thing that you sadly can't get anymore in the US. um, The original PlayStation 2 version of Yakuza. Where he was Goro Majima. Yeah, Goro Majima.
2: He he was also the trickster, the Joker, the, the, um, swamp thing. He, um, he voiced himself in an episode. He's like
0: half the DC cartoon universe. It's great.
2: There was an episode where he played, like, four versions of himself.
0: Yeah, like, yeah, it was that one Justice League cartoon they put out, like, Right before DC started their own streaming service, right?
2: Yeah, and th- th- there was a, a clip of that. I saw it's like, and he was voicing four different characters and tricking them.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh. Uh, uh, Skeksil the Chamberlain was played by Simon Pegg and performed by Warwick Brownlow Pike. Uh, you would know Simon Pegg from Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy, uh, The Adventures of Tintin the remake Star Trek films, and the remake Mission Impossible films. And Skexo the Emperor was played by Jason Isaacs and performed by Dave Chapman. You would know Jason Isaacs from the Harry Potter franchise, Avatar the Last Airbender, Star Wars Rebels, and you can hear him next... Uh, I forgot when next year, but um, he's Dick Dastardly in the new animated Scooby-Doo movie Scoob. All right, you know, so you now know, that I... You
3: know, you know, Roots, I think Jason Isaacs might be typecast. <laughs> <laughs> so, something about this resume
0: makes me feel that.
2: All I, right. I wonder. I, 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 I wonder. Yeah.
0: Zen, <laughs> why don't you start us off with the last of our skixies?
2: Um, well, I have to say, I... Love Mark Hamill in the role of the scientist. I think this is perfect, perfect, perfect casting. And this is the only voice that, from the get-go, that I kind of thought was, like, familiar. Admittedly, I was wrong. I didn't get the Mark Hamill. I forget who I thought it was at first, but I knew it was very familiar. And I'm just like, oh, what? Oh, yeah, I thought it was, um... God, why why can't I remember? The the guy who plays the Green Goblin in Spider-Man... Um, Oh, Willem Dafoe? I thought it was Willem Dafoe for some reason. That's what I thought at first. And then I'm like, I I know it sounds familiar, but it's like, no, it's Mark Hamill. Like, oh, okay. But I think this Mark Hamill... Mark Hamill is very good at, at playing a character who is conniving and evil and scientific. And I mean, we've seen this before when he plays the trickster... And um, a lot of the other DC villains. This is a character he's perfect playing, but he doesn't just play it the same way that he does other villains. He's not playing it as the Joker. He's doing very different things with it. And I, I love that he's able to have a range while still having a similar type of performance, if that makes sense. Um... As for the Chamberlain, I've always liked the Chamberlain. The Chamberlain was probably my favorite character in the movie because he actually had a character. <laughs> um, but I think the Chamberlain does really, really well. Sa- Simon Pegg does a great job of just like playing everyone, uh, trying to play everyone for fools. Um, even though they're all out to get each other, Skeksis are very bad guys, everybody. <laughs> um, and I, I did like Jason Isaacs as the Emperor. I think. He was very commanding, very threatening. You can see how he's in control of the society. You can see why, you know, the, the fact that he's able to understand and manipulate what's going on. Um, he, he's the smartest person in the room, and he does a good job of acting it. So I think all three of these are very good casting choices in their
0: roles. All right, so I um I'm on why don't you continue
3: Sure. Um usually when we do these segments I like to leave my favorite for last so I can gush about it. I don't know how to do that here. These are all equally good. They're like <laughs> yeah. really equally good.
2: It's it's tough because these guys are like oh they're so good character actors. It's
3: true, like, this, this, I, like, I, I, I was taking earlier, I thought they did a good job of picking actors who, like, you know, had AR experience or knew how to voice act, and I think that really shines through here. Like, these, these are, these are actors who, like, even if your parents don't know who they are, you can at least be like, no, no, you, you saw Harry Potter, you remember, you remember Malfoy, you remember Draco's dad, that guy. Like, there are people who, like, you can at least name a role that, like, people would recognize. They are, they are, I mean, Mark Hamill, obviously, everyone knows who the fuck Mark Hamill is, but they don't necessarily know he does voice acting. I remember Who's learning, Mark
2: Hamill again?
3: Like I, I remember being in high school and learning that the Joker and Luke Skywalker were played by the same person, and I did, did know how to feel about that. Um, <laughs>
2: I, I think it's funny, because because Luke becomes one of the best, you know, evil character actors.
3: The, the, the irony of Mark Hamill's career is just delightful. Um, but, uh, Let's start let's start with Jason Isaacs. He's great. Um obviously Jason Isaacs is no stranger to playing uh big menacing villains. He is very good at it. That's why he keeps getting cast as them. Uh and he is great. Like, um you know, a lot of a lot of the Skexies, even if they're kind of a little menacing, they often come off as a you know, a little bit comical some of the time, as I think we were mentioning. Um but the Emperor very much comes off as like, Oh, he knows his shit. There's a reason he's in charge. Uh, Jason Isaacs just has that great voice that just that just sells that commanding presence so well. Uh, you can tell why you know everyone else seems like they're a little they don't want to get on the Emperor's bad side. They're maybe not afraid of him, but they're 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 smart enough to know no, no, don't don't mess up the Emperor. That's a stupid idea. Um, and he just he just sells it very well. Um, also, I, I, I suspect Roots will bring this up at some point. But there is also on Netflix there is a little making of documentary about the Dark Crystal, and Jason Isaacs is one of the actors who they get to, like, interview for a significant part of it, and it's it, you can tell, like, he clearly was having, uh, he was, like, really impressed by this production, and clearly was proud to have, like, played a part in it, and I think you can you can see that in his performance, like, he's clearly, like, he is not, this is not one, this is not somewhere they got some big-name actor, and he's gonna, like, phone it in a little bit for a paycheck, it's like, no, no, I'm gonna use all that pathos that I can muster for this character, because it deserves that. Um, he's great. Um, Mark Hamill is Mark Hamill is an absolute delight because, of course, he is. He's Mark Hamill. Um, he is so he he's so he's good at playing villains, and he's so good at playing such a wide range of villains. Um, you know, i uh, he's he's so he's so good as these this sort of gross mad scientist who's. A little threatening, but also kind of pathetic, and like you know, wails on his like poor, like downtrodden lackeys who he's basically enslaved to do his dirty work for him. Um, and he's he's just he's so odious. I think it's just the word. It's like he he feels like a guy who almost should be like higher up in the food chain than he is, but he's such a creep that no one likes him enough to let him do that, which is why he constantly gets like wailed upon and gets one of his eyes scratched out and so on. There's 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 sort of this menacing patheticness about him, and I think Hamill just does such a wonderful job of selling that. It's it's just it's 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 it's, like I don't know of a lot of bad Mark Hamill performances per se, but like this this is this is a good one. This is this is (laughs) this is one of the good ones. This Uh, this is up there. (laughs) Yeah yeah. This is this is this is a character he's good at playing. Um, (laughs) And Simon Pegg (laughs) giving giving us giving us giving us. I've never, I never heard someone be able to put so much emphasis behind a like nonverbal noise like that. It's, it's, he, he, he is also clearly having a lot of fun playing this character, who is such a fucking rat. And not, <laughs> and not even really trying to hide it that much. Like I feel like everyone knows that Chamberlain's a rat. They've just gotten so used to it, they kind of stop worrying about him. It's like, eh, it's the Chamberlain, whatever. I feel, What's I feel he like, gonna do?
2: I feel like even in the movie, he's the only one you could tell he's playing everyone.
3: Oh yeah, no, he's 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 got he's got a lot of he's got he's got plots on top of plot. He's got plots for his first plots fall, fall apart because hey, he's that kind of a guy. <laughs> um, and Simon Cypher Pegg does a wonderful job of selling that. Um, he is so he's so conniving, and he, he he finds such a wonderful voice for the character, which sounds. Like, the appropriate level of cartoonish, but not so much that when he does succeed at what he's setting out to do, it suddenly feels like a turn. Like, it's it's just on the right edge of comic relief. That he can he can seem like, no, no, he might actually get what he wants. If only because he's the only one actively, like, he's the only one who cares enough to try. And that might actually be what pulls him over the top. Case in point, he lasts till the movie. Like, not, other, not every character in here can say that. Yeah,
2: um, yeah. <laughs>
3: and he, Simon Pegg's just, he's just so much fun in this. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. I love it so much. It's, this is there, like, I want this to get a second season in general because I think it's, like, a really great show with high quality production and so on. But I, uh, to a certain extent, they're also just performances I want to hear more of. And Simon Pegg is definitely up there. He's great.
2: I think, in terms of, like, just the series overall, I think the good thing about it being a prequel is is that there's so much that they can do with it. I want to see more, but I I think that they they gave themselves a position where they could do more.
0: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so these three performances are just absolutely chef kiss. I just love that the Jim Henson Company found three character actors that could not only pull off these three conniving little shits, but also chew the scenery, spit it back up, form it into a general ham shake, give it a nice little roast at 350 degrees for about... Mm, 35-40 minutes and then just eat it all over again like um Mark Hamill's Tech like he's very clearly sees himself as the smartest man in the room but he can't read a room <laughs> I just love the in the final episode every every other one of the Skeksis had gone off to battle and he was stuck left behind to experiment on a bunch of creatures, see what he could do to make, like, an army of loyal soldiers. But that means he's stuck in the castle. He can't go out into battle, and he's pissed off about it. So what does he do? He sits in the Emperor's throne and berates every servant around him. And, it's pr- and he probably has one of my favorite line deliveries at that point of of Skektek, which is just I am the most abused creature in all of (laughs) Thra, And he's just shouting at everybody at at podlings, at the two, I I forgot what their their species was, but the guys with their mouths sewn shut. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just yelling at everybody around him, and it's just this Beautiful little moment of Ham And Simon Ham Peg-
2: from the Hamel <laughs>
0: <laughs> There we go It's in the name <laughs> But oh my god Simon Pegg's uh, Chamberlain Cause Obviously these three characters Are characters that also Continue on into the movie In one form or another. So... One thing I really appreciate with Simon Pegg's performance is... He took what was already there... With the the performance from the film. And instead of trying to mimic that 100%. He made it his own. And that is... In all honesty... In... In my opinion, and this is the case also with the anime that we cover on Dub Talk, I tend to prefer it when... If if an actor is taking over a character from another actor, I don't like it when they try to do a perfect impersonation. Because they're not going to be able to do it. Like... An anime voice actor can sound really close to another one, but in very few instances, are they going to be able to mimic that actor perfectly. There's like one, maybe two instances where I I think that that is actually like 100% worked. But here, Simon Pegg did his own thing with the... With his performance, but also brought in a little bit of the mannerisms and the vocal patterns of the actor who originally played the Chamberlain. I forgot his name, I did the research on this, but I didn't think to include it in my notes, but anyway. But I just love the fact that Simon Pegg made the Chamberlain his own character. And... One thing I really appreciate with Jason Isaacs in that sense as the Emperor is he made, you know, like Simon Pegg as the Chamberlain, he made the Emperor his own thing. Mainly because in the movie, the Emperor is only in the very beginning, like, five-ish minutes, and it's just basically a decrepit corpse that is just wheezing and coughing and... Basically dying. But one thing I really like about the performance is he was very menacing as the Emperor. But in the scenes when the Emperor gets very angry or when he's talking with the General in the Pit of the Darkening, you hear a little bit of Jerry Nelson in his voice who played the Emperor in the film. Like, you hear that... And the sort of pained, wheezing speaking that Jerry Nelson used to portray the Emperor dying. Like, I thought that was very impressive, and that is, to me, the thing that really sold Jason Isaacs as the Emperor, especially when I caught on to it. So, all in all, these... These three are very strong performances of the show. And alongside the... Alongside the others make a very strong ensemble.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so next up, we have Lady Agra, the physical embodiment of the planet of Thra and its life force. Uh, she has been wandering the cosmos for for the centuries that the Skeksis have been slowly, slowly encroaching on the world and poisoning it from within. She comes back unable to speak to the planet and has to basically relearn everything that she's learned. And then we also have Hup, who's sort of... He's he's a podling. He's a another denison of the world other than the uh, <clears throat> other than the gelfling uh they are seen generally as slightly inferior creatures but he has grand ambitions to be a paladin of the of the gelfling and the be a noble warrior but all he's equipped with is a spoon <laughs>
2: But as, but as we know from The Tick, a spoon can be good for some things.
1: Spoon! spoon.
0: <laughs> but, um, he has a very big heart. He's <clears throat> He develops a very strong friendship with the third protagonist of our series, Deet. And he unfortunately gets shoved to the wayside for the last two episodes, but, you know, always room for a season two. Uh, So, Lady Agra is played in the series by Donna Kimball, and is performed by Kevin Clash and Catherine Smee. Uh, Donna Kimball, you might have heard from such things as The Happy Time Murders the Amazon remake of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, uh, Greg the Bunny, and Sid the Science Kid. And Hup is played by Victor Yarid, and is also performed by him, as well as Catherine Smee. Now, Victor Yerid is same general case, uh, where he appears to be sort of More or less an in-house performer of the Jim Henson Company. But you might have heard him in such things as Celebrity Deathmatch, Greg the Bunny, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and Sid the Science Kid. Uh, So, Zen, why don't you start us off? Um,
2: Well, first of all, I don't know either of these um, actors because I don't know any of these shows... And I, I, well, I mean, I've never seen the Happy Time Murders. I've heard of that at least, but I've ne- I haven't right. seen, um, some of this. And so it was interesting for me because, you know, having seen the movie beforehand, Agra is, um, very distinct in mannerisms. Agra is very, is, is a character that, you know, was very standout. To me, Agra was the standout of the film. And having someone else put their own spin on it was interesting. Um, I would like to see definitely more of of this character in, a, as things go on in the future. Because um, it, it was not something I was expecting, but it was something that was very interesting. Um, I think it was a very good performance. As for Hup, um, I would like to see more of Hup as well. Because very good performance... Um, definitely, you know, like you said, put by the wayside near the end, so there is room for a season two, and I would like to see, you know, this character actually get, like, some good resolution, I I feel for this character.
0: Hmm, okay.
3: Um, Amon? Yeah, uh, these are, these are some fun performances. Um, Victor Yurid's really good. Um, I I find it interesting because if you look at the cast list for uh, the movie, like, uh, obviously they they did hire some, um, you know, actors to like develop characters, but there's a lot more in terms of like um, people who were, correct me if I'm wrong about this, there's a lot more in terms of like people who were like part of kind of like the regular Henson puppeteering voice acting crew uh, voicing characters for the movie. Right. Uh, means while well, here, obviously, you know, obviously the puppetry is all done by them, but a lot of the voices are, uh, you know, regular, you know, actors or voice actors um, dubbing over the puppet performances, um, which makes uh, Victor one of the more standouts. And I think he, he does a really good job in part because he basically has to talk a makeup language <laughs> that, that, according to the documentary, even the person who made up the language can't really speak. They just understand how to construct it for a scene. Um, so that's fun.
1: <laughs> um.
3: But he's he's just he's just a lot of fun. Like Hup, Hup is. Uh, I mean, I, I, you might agree with me, Roots given what your avatar has been the last few months. So I feel like Hup is probably the the sensational character standout of the show because. He, yeah. he wants to be good. Damn it, he's, a, he's
2: he's a good boy.
3: He's a he is he's a member of probably the most like looked down upon species in this entire world. And just he wants to do good. God damn it, he's a good kid <laughs> with his spoon. He's a like he's best boy. He is he is unquestionably the best boy.
2: He's he's cinnamon roll. He is
3: he, he is he is he is approaching the top of the list of best boy in all of fiction. He just uh, <laughs> he just has to he just has to he just has to knock Kumar off the top somehow, which is a, no it's a no mean task.
2: <laughs> That's um, not an easy thing to do.
3: No, but Victor is very good at this. Like he is he is so you know he's he's very entertaining. He does such a wonderful job of. Communicating this character, you know, and like the the language, the um, what's the species called? I'm I'm blanking on it. They're uh, podling, podling. Like the species, like they're like you can't. They're not. It's not like completely foreign. Like you know, obviously, there's a little bit of English mixed into this made up language. You can kind of understand what they're talking about if you listen to it. Um, But he's able to sell like what Hupp is going through so well, even without that. It's like it's just a really well done, fine tuned performance. I thought. Um, he's very entertaining. I definitely want Huff to come back. Like, he's a lot of fun. I want more of this character. He's great. Um, Donna Kimball, I also think, is does a wonderful job as Lady Agra. Apparently, she's also filling some very big shoes, I found out. I was, I was messing around on the Dark Crystal Wiki while you were talking, because I was curious to know who voiced her in the movie. Um... On the Dark Crystal Wiki, which mostly just concerns, like, what they're doing with the movie, they note that she had a 25-year professional relationship with Samuel Beckett. If you're not in the theater out there, he wrote Waiting for Godot. He's that guy. Uh, It's considered, like, one of of the foremost interpreters of his work. So, like, she... Donna Kimball is stepping the name into the shoes set by, like, a big-fucking-name theater actress. And I think she does a wonderful job in this. She is excellent as this character it is so pitch perfect it feels wonderful it was like lady Augur obviously is a prominent character in the movie as well and um, much like with mark hamill playing the scientist i think she does a wonderful job of feeling like yes no this is this is not an imitation of that performance but it is clearly like an extension of it this feels like the same character mm-hmm. at a different point in their life um i think she does like an absolutely wonderful job as well like she's really um, point she is funny when she needs to be because lady agra for you know being kind of this wise old woman is also not like not ribald that's not the right word but there's a very like kind of you know for, for someone who seems like it should be kind of this you know smart airy mystic there's a very kind of like low class aspect to her character that i think donna sells very well mm-hmm. uh you know she's got she's a little rude and crass in a way you wouldn't expect somebody who's clearly so important in this mystic fantasy land um she she's just she's just been such a wonderful spot on performance. It, it this this feels like one where if you had told me if you lied to my face and said that this was one of the instances where the primary puppeteer for this character was also the voice actress, I would have completely believed you. It's like it feels that succinct and like you know in one like it is with um, Hopu. I think you can tell like yeah no this is this is a character being voiced by the person puppeting them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really yeah. it's a really well done performance. I like it a lot.
0: Yeah, so, um, I think I'm gonna start with uh, Lady Agra, because I have a little more to say about Hop. Um, I... Like Amon said, I I really like the fact that um, Donna Kimball played her as an extension of what came before, as opposed to completely trying to imitate it. It definitely feels like she is trying to play a younger version of Lady Agra, and she definitely has that... She has that really funny, sarcastic sense that uh, the original actress, that I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but, um... Like, in the movie, Agra was just sort of this... She would help you, but you gotta figure out like all of it yourself I she's only gonna give you the first step and then she's gonna be completely rude to you to get you get out of your house and go on your adventure and leave me out of this and i I really love the fact that she sort of played into that level of just like she's like, crass there we go yeah but um, she she plays into the crassness of the character really well. Uh, my favorite particular scene, as I mentioned before, was her interactions with the archer. Where after he fires the, the arrow straight up and it lands in front of her to tell her, like, Hey, just try and talk to the planet again. Um, her retort was, you know, You could have said that a little more succinctly with a lot less walking. And I think that encapsulated the character very well. She, um... She's trying to get back into the rhythm of things. Because... she is, She's basically been astral projecting for about a millennia. And she comes back to find... You know... The new tenants of her planet kind of trash the place... She doesn't necessarily want to kick him out, but she wants to, you know, stop them from wrecking her place. New tenants are kind of assholes.
3: They're really awful.
0: They don't pay their rent on time. Uh, mm. but that also brings me to um, to huh who is probably my favorite performance of the show, just because, like, especially after seeing The Crystal Calls, and hearing Victor Yeren talk about how he portrayed the character, how he... how he was basically the one who who kind of figured out the personality of Hup as he went. And, like, you could tell that he has lived in this character. Which is a very hard hard thing to do when you're basically holding the character up about three feet above you. But, um, the, the physical performance was great. Um, he also... Like, you really get the sense of his naivete and... Just his general desire to just be a good boy. Like, it's it's wonderful, his performance. Especially, like, one of my favorite scenes of him is they've been crossing the desert and they get a ride on this giant flying mana ray creature. And they finally land. And it turns out Hup gets airsick so it's the sort of like episode 7 the the main title card just popped up and disappeared and you just see hop by a rock throwing up and you know the the characters around him are just remarking you know that's a lot coming out of him for such a little podling so <laughs> Dude. So Deet goes up to him And asks if he's okay And he just replies with three words In the kind of tone that's like Same dude Same And it's just Hup Want Die And then he (laughs) leans over and continues to throw up And it's just like Yeah that's it That's the millennial experience right there But, in particular, um, there were also a a couple of other great scenes, um, Deaton Huppin's Stone in the Wood is another great standout for him, where Deaton is of a subspecies of Gelfling that, you know, the other, the other clans haven't seen for centuries, so they Assume it's wiped out, and they think very little of her. Uh, So, a group of soldiers is giving her a hard time, and Hup stands in the way, and he's like, No hurt, deep." And... It's just... The whole thing is just great. And he sings at points, he... He jokes around. He has. They wrote an entire language for the Podlings. And Victor Yared knew more about it than the guy who wrote the language. That should tell Mm -hmm. you something. So. Both Donna Kimball and Victor Yared did very great jobs with their characters. Solid thumbs up all around. Uh, So, last up we have our three protagonists. Uh, Rianne is part of a noble family of Skeksis' powerless guards. Um, he learns of the evil of the Skeksis-draining Gelflings when his betrayal ends up getting taken and and basically drained. And the entire first half of the series is him trying to find the bottle of essence that she became and protecting it which she ends up being drunk by the uh by the chamberlain bit of a dick move right there
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh we have Brea, the daughter of uh, the almadra who has to watch her her mother get stabbed by the general uh she's a general kind of bookwormish character um, More interested in studying the ancient texts than learning how to be a princess. And that ends up being something that helps the group in the long run. Because she ends up meeting the... Sort of a golem-ish character named Lore that brings them to the heretic and the wanderer. And sets their entire quest in motion. And then you have Dee from the from a clan of Gelfling who dwell underground. She's one of the first to actually notice the effects of the darkening happening on the creatures of Thra and the general surroundings. So she's on a quest to warn the Almadra of what's going on. And along the way, she meets uh, she meets Hup, and that basically forms our little. Fellowship of the Ring here. Uh, so, Rian is played by Taryn Egerton, and performed by Neil Sterenberg, who we actually mentioned before, because he is the voice of the Scroll Keeper. And I think he also performs him as well. Anyway, uh, you would know Taron Egerton from such things as The Kingsman. He played Elton John in Rocket Man. That I, I feel like just naming out Rocket Man isn't enough. Like he was actually playing Elton John in Rocketman. And if that doesn't get like an Academy Award nominee next year, I'm gonna actually like flip a table. It,
2: we <laughs> If it doesn't win we riot.
0: If it doesn't get nominated, we'll
3: riot That's that's absurd.
0: Um, Brea is played by Anya Taylor-Joy And played by um, I'm sorry, and performed by Alice Dinian uh, You would know Anya Taylor-Joy From such films as The Witch uh, She was in Split and Glass And uh, she was also In The New Mutants If Disney can actually You know, figure out a release date for that they better wink, fucking Wink Give me my goddamn horror movie. <laughs> uh, so, Deet is played by uh, Natalie Emanuel and performed by Catherine Smee and Becky Henderson. Uh, you would know Deet from such films as uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, she's been in the Fast and the Furious franchise since Furious 7. Uh, she's in the Maze Runner franchise as well as the Hulu series of Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, So, Zen, why don't you start us off?
2: Um, I really love these three performances. And uh, for the main characters, I think uh, they they have a lot to work with. Um, And they perform these subtle nuances very well. And I think the biggest thing for me was Rianne. Um, in the very first episode, you know, where you get a feel for his character, where he's very happy-go-lucky, he steals food from the podlings, and, you know, he's doing all this stuff, but he wants to prove himself to his father, who's the captain, and you really get across the subtlety of his performance. happy go lucky wants to prove himself, but really in love, and then it comes to a head when his fiancée is killed, and, like, there's a lot of subtlety in this performance that I really enjoy, and his... Is uh, character arc throughout the entire series is is wonderful, um, and uh, honestly, Taron Egerton does a great job of portraying these wide array of uh, emotions that he goes through. Um, I loved this character from the very beginning, and just seeing what you know the performance just adds to it. Um, as for Brea, uh, Brea was my favorite of the three from the get go, simply because I love how she's uh more interested in book learning and she's the one questioning everything. And you really get across in a performance that she's just like, but, but why, but why though? Like, why are we doing this? And her, her conflict with the Almadra is wonderful. Like I loved just from the first episode where she's just asking her mother, but why can't we give, why do we have to take the tithe from the people if they, if their land is, you know, not giving us crops? Like we have enough and it just, her energy and her performance is really well done. Um, and as for Deet, I think Deet did a good job of of performing the soft nature of the character. Because, you know, she's the underground race. She's more communicating with animals than the rest of them. And she's she's very much one of the characters who's supposed to be soft-performing. Um, and and very kind and that really gets across in that performance. I like all three of these characters are wonderful.
0: Okay. Um Amon.
3: Yeah, no, these are these are great performances. Um where to start. Um That's a good question. These are these are good i I'm happy these are the leads. These are some good strong performances to, to rest the uh, you know, rest on uh, rest your show on. Um, start with Deet. Um, I thought Emmanuel was just really, just really good. Um, Deet's an interesting character in that she is, you know, she she is a gelfling. She is kind of part of this society, but she's from a tribe who are a lot more isolated. And there is, the, I I felt like she did a. There's this one. There, there's very much the sense of like she is. She's a part of this world, but she is a little removed compared to like everyone else who lives above ground. And like you know, the, you know this world they're in is just kind of their day to day life, and for her it's kind of this slightly weird alien place, which is probably part of the reason why she spends half the show running around with a podling, um, who's also you know a little bit of a misfit and doesn't quite know what he's doing. And um, she's she gives, a, she gives a wonderful performance of someone who's very like bright and like curious by nature, but also. Um, not like naive, but just kind of like unworldly just cause like, you know, she's been living underground with her people for who knows how long, um, you know, so the, the minutia of above ground society is not something she has to deal with on a regular basis. So that's kind of a learning process for her. Um, but she's she just, has, just this wonderful, like authenticity. It feels very real and like grounded when it needs to be. And I just really enjoyed it as a, it was just a good performance in kind of a way I almost have a hard time articulating. It just felt very natural. It felt like this is this is the way this character would act and behave in, this, in these scenarios. I, I really I consistently enjoyed it a lot. Um, uh, Taylor Joy is also just really good as Rhea for kind of similar reasons. Like, she is this uh, character who, like, just, you know, has, has all these things she wants to do that aren't really the things that are sort of expected for her, and there's just her frustration of, like, why can't, why can't we do this? Why do we need to do this one narrowly defined thing over and over? Why can't we, like, shift around? Why can't we have other options? Um, there, there's, a, there's a very nice sense, especially in the scene where she's acting opposite um, Huddlebottom Carter of, like, uh, both, like, it, it, it very much tells, like, you know, oh, these two, like, you know, their, their mother and daughter, their family, like, you can feel that relationship behind their performance. Um, and also, I think, kind of the sense of, like, she is, she she sells the idea of, like, she has, like, she's not flighty or anything. Like, she understands the importance of what's going on. She just doesn't, you know, in her, in her mind, it's not, uh, you know, there's no reason to be so strict about it. There's there's very much a sense of, like, she is as much as, sort of, you know, regal and royal as her mother is. It's just it taking a much different form. And I like the way that, um, I thought Taylor-Joy kind of put that into the performance really well. Um, She feels like somebody, it's like, yeah, this is somebody who could be a queen of a society. Even if it would be a very different queen than kind of what this, uh, you know, this world kind of expects of someone in her position. Um, And also, I was really impressed by Taron Egerton. I kind of feel like if there's a performance in here that felt like it could have been stunt casting and fallen on its face, I feel like it would be him. Um, Just because, you know, he was in Rocket Man. He, He feels like he's kind of like one of the hot actors of the moment. Um, but no, I thought he did a really good job. He felt very, he felt very natural. He felt uh, like I just thought he captured the character so well, feeling like very, uh, you know, relatable and like just this nice, solid dude at the beginning, and then his progress from like things going to crap and him having to deal with that and figure out like how am I going to work through these situations that I keep finding myself in as I find out more of what's going on. Um, and he's just. He's just really good. Yeah, I don't know. The only thing—I mean—the closest thing I found to distracting is like his accent is a lot more like not speaking as an American who doesn't know the uh, nuances of English accents that well—is a lot more kind of like lower class than I feel like a lot of the other characters, which was an interesting choice. Maybe not delivered. I'm not sure. Um, but he's, 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 just a really good performance. Like I never, I never felt like he was phoning it in or kind of half-assing it. Um, there's a very, there's a very nice moment in the documentary about it where he talks about like, you know, seeing the dark crystal as a kid when it came out. Um, and I like that in part because it felt like, you know, I feel like you see a lot of these documentaries, characters talk about, you know, people talk about, it, oh, I was a fan of this so-and-so and you feel like sometimes they might be fudging the truth a little bit for promotional purposes. Um, but when Egerton's talking about it, it's like it tells like oh yeah no you're, you're into this like this is this is this is a big deal for you. And I think that you can see that in his performance. He's clearly giving it its all and I
0: think it definitely pays off. Okay. Um, so I'm actually gonna start with uh, Taryn Egerton and Rianne. Um I'm gonna be honest in the first like episode or two, it felt a little rough. Like, he was trying to find his footing in terms of, uh, like, the recording booth and ADR and whatnot. But, you know, by the end of the series and episode 10 and, you know, the big battle against the Skeksis where he has to actually step up and become a leader. Um, Like, I... Over the course of the show, I definitely felt that um, turn was vastly improving as he went. Like, it was... It was very palpable. And, um... He, he gets a lot of great moments, like the the aforementioned fight with the Hunter in Episode 4 where he has to, um... Uh, he has to fight alongside his father, which I don't think i mentioned it yet, but his father is played by Mark Strong. So... Like, he... He had a lot to work with, and did a really great job with it. And then the inspirational speech, which I think was at the end of episode nine, that where, he has, right. where he has to rally the Gelfling to join his band of resistance. And to be fair, like by the end of the episode, most of them did. So great job, uh, Anya Taylor Joy's Brea. I really like the fact that she played as Brea as sort of the she is very intelligent and at the same time, like she's kind of book smart, but street dumb. <laughs> Where she goes out in town and nearly gets hit by a Skeksis cart. So good on ya. But, um like, I think her standout scene is in the first episode where she is in the Skeksis' cart while they're escorting her home. And she actually gets to talk with them, and she just throws all these questions at them, and they're just trying to tell her, yeah, hey, um, Curiosity killed the cat, you know. Like, don't be smart. Be dumb. like <laughs> these people.
2: At the same time, the the scroll Master was kind of encouraging her a little bit, too which was like, you know, he he was I, th- that that that's the the thing I liked it the most about the first episode. It was like he was just like, you know, hey, like you you want to come see, you know, my my knowledge scrolls. I'll come help you. And it's like a little bit different because you wouldn't expect that from Skexy.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it also kind of had that sense of, yeah, we we don't mind if you're smart. Just don't think about this stuff right here. Like we're we're just going to sweep that under the rug. Just just ignore that. But, um, she gets a lot of great character growth over the course of the ten episodes we get. Um, particularly, uh, toward the middle of the series, right before everything hits the fan, and she's interacting with, um, with this huge puzzle underneath the castle. Where, if she figures it out, it will lead to reveal the secrets of... Um I I forgot the exact nature of the secret, but um, it ends up awakening lore and taking her and and the rest of the adventurers to um to the heretic and and all that But her trying to figure that out was just because at the same time you're starting to piece together the puzzle at, at around the same time she is. So it was really great man, and refreshing as she's figuring it out, you're figuring it out. And, um, one thing I do want to say about Deet before I actually get into the performance that I really appreciated. Um, first and foremost, um, Deet has two fathers. Like, it is confirmed over the course of the show, she mentions it. But like, they're also, they don't get much in the way of speaking lines. But her fathers are both older men. Which is something, because, you know, Age of Resistance is a show sort of aimed at, not necessarily children, but like, teen and adults and family kind of situation. So seeing like, older gay men in a in like a young adult kind of setting. That's actually kind of really refreshing.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs)
1: Hmm.
0: It's the meme of the show, folks. Get used to it. (laughs) Uh, But for the performance of V itself, um, Natalie Emmanuel did a really great job. Um, at first playing Deet was sort of the naivete of, like, not knowing anything about the surface world, but then also kind of being the empathetic core of the of the main band of adventurers. Like, Brea is the intelligence, Rian is the courage, and Deet is the empathy. Mmm. Mmm. Hmm. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs>
2: like, I mean, you're not wrong.
0: <laughs> like, she is the emotional core of the, of our band of characters, and like, I actually got kind of bummed out when she she learned the secret of the darkening and how to harness it, and she ends up absorbing too much in the last episode, and like, Isolates herself from everyone else, like that actually gave me a bit of a sad.
1: Mm. 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 <laughs>
3: <laughs> this, this is, but, this, uh, is a, this is a this is a show where all the triumph is always going to be a little undercut by knowing how things end up in the movie.
0: Yeah, and like because I mean,
3: something, something's going to go south eventually, and we, we're not going to know when until it happens. But it's always going to be hanging over it.
2: Unless, unless, you know, Secret Resistance people, like, are hidden underground or something. Uh.
0: Yeah, I can see it. It is kind of weird that the prophecy mentions, like, there are only, like, one or two Gelfling left, but... eh, They can kind of... If they really want to.
3: I've I've seen some theories floated around about how this relates exactly to the movie, but that's for another time.
1: Hmm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> but in terms of the performances of our three protagonists, like it was, it was like really great, really solid. Um, like I said, Taron Eg- um, Egerton had a little bit of a stumbling point at the start, but he ended up being one of the stronger performances by the end of the show. So, kudos all around. Uh, And with that, I think it is time for our final thoughts. So, Zen, why don't you start us off?
2: Honestly, I went into this with the expectation that it would be like the movie. Honestly, I wasn't the. I, I was intrigued by the show, but I wasn't, you know, overly expectant about certain things because, for the most part, you know, I think the movie is very much a product of its times, and has some severe faults that held it back for me. I was very, very pleasantly surprised. I love this show. I love the show very much. I think the performances and the direction and everything are fantastic. I think this definitely has the heart of a Jim Henson production, but also it has a lot more substance to it, and it's just more, more enjoyable for me. It has more charm. It has more world building in general it's it's uh, something that I really enjoyed and if you want to see more of my thoughts I'm doing an episode by episode breakdown um, on my own channel that will release um, in the future I'm not sure when but maybe before or after this episode goes live hmm, okay uh,
0: that's actually really cool um, I' on yeah, this show's great.
3: Um, this show is—it's on some level, this show doesn't need to be this good, but I'm so happy that it is. Um, on a technical level, it's like an astonishing performance. Uh, it is—it is so well shot and choreographed. Uh, there's so much in here that, like, you will—you'll see it happening, and it'll be great. And then right after it ends, you'll think, "Wait a minute, these are puppets. How did they even do this shot?" physics wouldn't allow that (laughs) um it's it is like you can see every dollar on screen it is it is an exceptional it is a feast for the eyes just on sort of a visual technical level alone even before you get to the story and the performances which i think are exceptionally well done i think it's really well written i think it is really interesting and cohesive i think it's a i think it is a it is a good story in of itself you do not if you have not seen the dark crystal movie which you can watch it if you have access to Netflix. It is also on there right now, as far as I know. Uh, but even if you know nothing about the Dark Crystal, you can sit down and watch this and have an excellent time. Um, I think the performances are exceptionally well done. I especially think when you consider the what you know the voice actors have to do in terms of like they have to follow this performance being done by the puppeteers, who yeah you know uh, you know you, you have to match what they're doing, um, and and much in the same way. Uh, many 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 years ago we did our episode of the godzilla movie where i think mm-hmm. i mentioned that um, dubbing over real people is hard especially in comparison to animation because with animation you can sometimes cheat a little you can't do with that with a person like they're talking when they're talking and obviously a puppet's not a person but i feel like especially at the level of articulation that you're working with here like you're at about that level like if you're not matching what the Puppeteer is doing how the puppeteer uh, performed that scene. Like it is going to be very obvious, and it is going to take everything right. It is going to take people right out of it. And Mm -hmm. I think this is this is so pitch perfect and so spot on for so for so much of it. It is absolutely phenomenal. I highly recommend it. It is exceptionally worth your time.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So I after I got this project approved and I was. Because it was, like, it was right before A-Fest and about two weeks before the actual show was supposed to drop. So, I got to the point where the episodes went live on Netflix. I went to check it out, and honestly, the the fact that I was even doing an episode on this didn't even click until right around the time I was done. Where I, I got to thinking, you know, like, this actually does have a lot of parallels with what we normally talk about on Dev Talk. In terms of these actors have to mimic performances by other people. It may be the same language that that is spoken between the two, but the, uh, the language of of emotion and of performance still needs to be conveyed accurately. And I, I think the pretty much across the board, the actors did a really great job of replicating their puppeteer counterparts. And when the puppeteers themselves actually do the voiceover performances, they do a really good job because, it feels like they're already in the characters' heads. Like, in the case of Hop, or the Scroll Keeper, or the, um... Oh, uh, shoot. I don't remember the name of the of the Skeksis. I think it's, like, the, the fashionista or the designer or something like that. But... Mm-hmm. Where there are cases where the, the puppeteer actually continues on and does a voiceover. Like, it's great. But... I, I think this is one of those really great cohesive packages. And, <clears throat> well, I don't think anyone else other than Netflix would have funded the show, like, with the kind of budget it ended up getting. It is kind of a shame it ended up there, though. Because, honestly, I think the the binge-watching model that Netflix wants to impose on you I think it actually does the show a bit of a disservice. Mm. Like, this is definitely a show that I would recommend wholeheartedly, but at the same time, like, do not binge this show. Watch an episode or two, give it a little bit of time to process and ruminate in your head, and then continue with another couple of episodes. Like, take this one slow. Take your time. Because there is a lot of wonder and a lot of majesty to this, and you're going to miss it if you just plow through it all in one sitting.
2: And there's also a lot of. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: we have fun here. <laughs> yeah, so um, If you would like to check out The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance Or the film that inspired it uh, They are actually Both available as of this moment On Netflix in the US Well, I I know Age of Resistance is Globally available on Netflix Because they paid for it But um, It's I want to say nowadays it's like thirteen bucks a month, something like that. Yeah, it, but it's it's also available in like cable package subscriptions. Some internet carriers will offer it to you. Like, and not to mention, you probably know somebody with a Netflix password. I Very likely.
2: I have my my parents' Netflix, so like I just you know we I I don't know about the price. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, same here. Like, statistically speaking, you probably know somebody who'd be willing to lend you their Netflix password. So, I'm not gonna say anything if you choose to do it that way, but...
2: As Super Butter Buns once said, hey, I won't tell if you won't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um... So I think now especially considering that this is going to be sort of a pilot program that we're going to be introducing through our Patreon, um, I think um, we have some people we'd like to thank. And these are our patrons. Um, at the $5 tier, we have Crimson Echidna, Michelle Travis, and Nico Robin, but with the Yowie hands. <laughs> And at the ten dollar tier, we have Curly Leszakow, Jacob Wilson, J2, AKA Jared, uh, Marco Bermudez, Marissa Lenti, and Weebee. Um, if you like to subscribe to our Patreon, if if this happens to be. If you happen to be listening on YouTube when this finally drops, um, we'll have a link to that in our description below. And, um, yeah, uh, you can find us on YouTube at the Dub Talk Podcast, and we also have a Twitter and Twitch account of the same name. Uh, We're kind of in between figuring out what we're going to do with the Twitch account at the moment, but when we have something, it will be announce via our Twitter. Uh, so, at this point of the episode, I guess, um, what are you guys up to, um, Zen?
2: Um, well, this year I have been mostly up to dying, um, in trying to prevent said dying, um, but when I'm not doing so, I have a YouTube account at youtube.com slash zenithwillreview, and and I stream at uh, twitch.tv slash zenithwillrule. Um, I also have my own Patreon at patreon.com slash zenithwillrule as well. So if you want to, you know, help support me, I do a lot of different things. Um, and it's hard to keep track with all of them. Um, the most recent thing that I did was a crossover on the first film in the Saw franchise with Diamanda Amanda Hagen um and uh next year we are also going to do a second crossover with a third guest so you know stay tuned for that if you if you like horror films and whatnot um i'm also you know doing tv show stuff and and all this other stuff when i'm not dying um but also thank you so much patrons for supporting dub talk you guys are wonderful and we love you
0: all right um Amon,
3: what are you up to uh, well, you can you can find me on Twitter at AmanduelUS. Duel has two U's in it, where I jabber on about movies and music, and I'll occasionally talk about things I'm reading at the comic book store I work at, uh, which are all very good, and you should come to our store and see our giant wall of manga. It's very nice. Um, it is. It's very nice. <laughs> it's a, it's <laughs> half our stock. As my old manager used to say, we're the gay manga store. So come there and get your gay manga. Um, <laughs> uh, and so you can, you can do that and see me uh, talk about media and occasionally just sort of gripe about how I don't like anybody um, I like you, I just hate nerds on the internet because I find them tiresome they're so <sighs> exhausting anyways, uh, but on a happier note, would you like a song?
1: yeah I guess, I guess the I guess, uh, old
3: song would be great do you, do you want one song or two? Ooh, you have two. I have. I. I. I had a hard time picking a good song for this because I want something that felt uh, totally appropriate and ideally it was from 1982 when the original movie came out. I part of me wanted to go with um, something by David Bowie, but then I remembered that I kind of hate most of David Bowie's 80s output. Mm, um, yeah. So that wasn't good. It's like Scary Monsters, great. Let Let's Dance. I'm not going to shit on anything Niles Roger produced.
2: <laughs> dance Magic, a, dance.
3: I hate that song. <laughs> It's garbage. Aww. It's a bad children's mm. song that people think they like because David Bowie sang it. That's it. I, I mean, love it. <laughs> I'm happy. I am happy you love it. I, I'm always happy when music brings joy to people. I don't like it. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so instead, I decided to go weird. Uh, my oh first boy. suggestion. My first suggestion is the song. I'm going to mispronounce this because it's Swedish and I don't know Swedish. Genta? Uh, by the Swedish band Von Zamla. Uh, they are like a spinoff of another Swedish prog rock band whose name I don't remember how to pronounce. Uh, they're like weird leftists. They're great. It sounds like demented circus music. Go check it out.
0: Um, that sounds like you,
3: my jam. I know, it's great. But if you want something a little more sort of, uh, you know, high high fantasy uh, romantic, might, might I suggest the song Antul by the uh, beloved Irish folk rock band Clanad. Uh, they're not where the anime gets its name from, Clanet's just the Irish word for family so, um, which is also a, a fun song to listen to because if you listen to it, you'll hear the singer on that particular song, which is the youngest member of the band at the time, who the following year would uh, quit the band uh, and go off with their manager for a solo career and take her long uh, Irish name, which is difficult for people to pronounce, and shorten it to Enya, and get way more famous than Clan Ed ever was uh, oh wow! So that's fun. Oh yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> like people, people in America, they don't know who Clanet is. They know who Enya is. <laughs>
1: mm. I, wa- I, I I,
3: watched a uh, what the hell is it? I've, I've seen, I saw, a t- I saw a CD infomercial for smooth, moody music in the nineties. I know who Enya is.
1: <laughs>
3: um, so go check those out. They're a fun time.
2: Pure moods volume. That what?
3: That's what it is. Pure <laughs> moods. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can not remember the name, but that's what it is.
2: <laughs> I only know of it because of the obscure.
0: <sighs> and if you'd like to follow me, um, I can be found on Twitter at Roots of Justice, where I mainly just retweet cute animal pics. Uh, talk about general fandom stuff. Um, also, I'm trying to get some reviews written up so that I can, you know... Get them posted somewhere. Um, I do plan on having some, like, actual written reviews for the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. As well as, um, I'm actually attempting to do some reviews for, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Hell So, yes. once I, um... Cause I'm I'm looking at reapplying to the fandom posts they they might go there I might put them on my own blog we'll figure it out uh so with that I think the episode is done
2: and with that being said just remember everybody
1: hmm mm-hmm.
2: have a good day everyone and ju- and you know otaku on my friends
0: rock on eh. Boston rock on Cleveland and otaku on there devas uh Donald I was about to say Donald yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Alright, ready? One, two, three. Sink.
2: Sink. And the safety word is
1: hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm working with a bunch of professionals here. <laughs> Very kind of you to say
2: It's almost like I've done this So much before
0: (laughs) Are we Getting good at this? (laughs) Perish the thought